Kafka on the Shore, Chapter 43 With all my baggage gone, I can travel light now, forging on deeper into the forest. I focus only on moving forward. No need to mark any more trees, no need to remember the path back. I don't even look back at my surroundings. The scenery is always the same, so what's the point? A canopy of trees towering above thick ferns, vines trailing down, gnarled roots, lumps of decaying leaves, the dry, slowed-off skins of various insects, hard, sticky spiders' webs, and endless branches, a veritable tree branch universe, menacing branches, branches fighting for space, cleverly hidden branches, twisted, crooked branches, contemplative branches, dried-up, dying branches, the same scenery repeated over and over, though with each repetition the forest grows a bit deeper. Mouth tightly shut, I continue down what passes for a path. It's running uphill, but not so steeply, at least for now. Not the kind of slope that's going to get me out of breath. Sometimes the path threatens to get lost in a sea of ferns or thorny bushes, but as long as I push on ahead, the pseudo-path pops up again. The forest doesn't frighten me anymore. It has its own simple rules and patterns, and once you stop being afraid, you're aware of them. Once I grasp these repetitions, I make them a part of them. I'm empty-handed now. The can of yellow spray paint, the little hatchet, their history. The rucksack's gone too. No canteen, no food. Not even the compass. One by one, I left these things behind. Doing this gives a visible message to the forest. I'm not afraid anymore. That's why I chose to be totally defenseless. Minus my hard shell, just flesh and bones, I head for the core of the labyrinth, giving myself up to the void. The music that has been playing in my head has vanished, leaving behind some faint white noise like a taut white sheet on a huge bed. I touch that sheet, tracing its outline with my fingertips. The white goes on forever. Sweat beats up under my arms. Sometimes I can catch a glimpse of the sky through the treetops. It's covered with an even unbroken layer of grey clouds, but it doesn't look as though it's going to rain. The clouds are still the whole scene unchanging. Birds in the high branches call out clipped, meaningful greetings to each other. Insects buzz prophetically among the seeds. I think about my deserted house in Nogata. Probably it's all shut up now. Fine by me. Let the bloodstains be. What do I care? I'm never going back there. Even before that bloody incident occurred, that house was a place where lots of things had died. Correction, were murdered. Sometimes from above me, sometimes from below, the forest tries to threaten me, blowing a chill breath on my neck, stinging like needles with a thousand eyes. Trying anything to drive this intruder away, but I gradually get better at letting these threats pass me by. This forest is essentially a part of me, isn't it? This thought takes hold at a certain point. The journey I'm taking is inside me, just as blood travels down veins, what I'm seeing is my inner self, and what seems threatening is just the echo of the fear in my heart. 
The spider's web stretched taut over there is the spider's web inside me. The birds calling out overhead are birds I have fostered in my mind. These images spring up in my mind and take root. As if I am being shot from behind by some huge heartbeat, I continue on and on through the forest. The path leads to a special place, a light source that spins out the dark, the place where soundless echoes come from. I need to see with my own eyes what's there. I'm carrying an important, sealed, personal letter, a secret message to myself, a question. Why didn't she love me? Don't I deserve to have my mother love me? For years, that question's been a white hot flame burning my heart, eating away at my soul. There had to be something fundamentally wrong with me that made my mother not love me. Was there something inherently polluted about me? Was I born only so that everyone could turn their faces from me? My mother didn't even hold me close when she left. She turned her face away and left home with my sister without saying a word. She disappeared like quiet smoke and now that face is gone forever. The birds screech above me again and I look up at the sky. Nothing there but that flat, expressionless layer of grey cloud. No wind at all. I trudge along. I'm walking by the shores of consciousness. Waves of consciousness roll in, roll out. Leave some writing and just as quickly new waves roll in and erase it. I try to quickly read what's written there between one wave and the next, but it's hard. Before I can read it, the next waves washed it away. All that's left are puzzling fragments. My mind wanders back to my house, to the day my mother left, taking my sister with her. I'm sitting alone on the porch, staring at the garden. It's twilight in early summer, and the trees cast long shadows. I'm alone in the house. I don't know why, but I already knew I was abandoned. I understood even then how this would change my world for her forever. Nobody told me this. I just knew it. The house is em empty, deserted, an abandoned lookout post on some far-off frontier. I'm watching the sun setting in the west, shadows slowly stealing over the world. In a world of time, nothing can go back to the way it was. The shadows antenna steadily advance, eroding away one point after another along the ground, until my mother's face there, until a moment ago, is swallowed up in this dark, cold realm. That hardened face turned from me is automatically snatched away, deleted from my memory. Trudging along in the woods, I think of Miss Psyche. Her face, that calm, shadowy smile, the warmth of her hand. I try imagining her as my mother, leaving me behind when I was four. Without realizing it, I shake my head. The picture is all wrong. Why would Miss Psyche have done that? Why does she have to hurt me to permanently screw up my life? There had to be a hidden important reason, something deeper I'm just not getting. I try to feel what she felt when, then, and get closer to her viewpoint. It isn't easy. I am the one who was abandoned after all. She is the one who did the abandoning. But over time, I take leave of myself. My soul slows off the stiff clothes of the self 
and turns into a black crow that sits on a branch high in a pine tree in the garden gazing down at the 4 year old boy on the porch i turn into a theorizing black crow it's not that your mother didn't love you the boy named crow says from behind me she loved you very much the very first thing you have to do is believe that that's your starting point but she abandoned me she vanished leaving me alone where i shouldn't be i'm only now beginning to understand how much that hurt so how could she do that if she really loved me that's the reality of it it did happen the boy named crow says you were hurt badly and those scars will be with you forever i feel sorry for you i really do but think of it like this it's not too late to recover you're young you're tough you're adaptable you can patch up your wounds lift up your head and move on but for her that's not an option the only thing she'll ever be is lost it doesn't matter whether somebody judges this as good or bad that's not the point you are the one who has the advantage you ought to consider that i don't respond it all really happened so you can't undo it crow tells me she shouldn't have abandoned you then and you shouldn't have been abandoned but things in the past are like a plate that shattered into pieces you can never put it back as it was right i nod you can never put it back as it was he hit the nail on the head the boy named crow continues your mother felt a terrible fear and anger inside her okay just as you do now and that is why she had to abandon you even though she loved me even though she loved you she had to abandon you you need to understand how she felt then and learn to accept it understand the overpowering fear and anger she experienced and feel it as your own that way you won't inherit it and repeat it the main thing is this you have to forgive her that's not going to be easy i know but you have to do it that's the only way you can be saved there's no other way i think about what he said the more i think about it the more confused i get my head's spinning and i feel as if my skin's being ripped away is miss psyche really my mother i ask didn't she tell you that theory is still functional the boy named crow says so that's the answer it's still a functioning hypothesis that's all i can tell you a working hypothesis until some good counter evidence comes along you got it crow says and i have to pursue that hypothesis as far as it will take me that's it crow replies pointedly a theory that still doesn't have any good counter evidence is one worth pursuing and right now pursuing it's the only choice you have even if it means sacrificing yourself you have to pursue it to the bitter end sacrifice myself that certainly has a strange ring to it i can't quite grasp it there's no real reply worried i turn around the boy named crow is still there he's right behind me keeping pace what sort of fear and anger did my psyche have at that time i ask him as i turn back around and walk on and where did it come from what kind of fear and anger do you think she had the boy named crow asks in return think about it you've got to work that one out yourself that's what your head's for so i do just that i have to understand it accept it before it's too late but i still can't make out that delicate writing left on the shore of my consciousness there's not enough time between one wave and the next i'm in love with my psyche i say the words 
slip out naturally. I know that the boy named Crow smiles, says curtly, "I've never felt that before." I go on, and it's more important to me than anything else I've ever experienced. Of course, it is. Crow says that goes without saying. That's why you have come all this way. But I still don't get it. I'm stumped. You're telling me my mother loved me very much. I want to believe you, but if that's true, I just don't get it. Why does loving somebody mean you have to hurt them as much? I mean, if that's the way it goes, what's the point of loving someone? Why the hell does it have to be like that? I wait for an answer. I keep my mouth shut for a long time, but there's no response. So I spin round. The boy named Crow is gone. From up above, I hear the flap of wings. You're totally confused. Not long afterwards, the two soldiers appear. They're wearing fatigues of the old Imperial Army, short-sleeved summer uniforms, gaiters, and knapsacks. No helmets, just caps with peaks and some kind of blank face paint. Both of them are young. One of them tall and thin, with round metal-framed glasses. The other one short, broad-shouldered, and muscular. They're sitting on a flat rock, neither one looking as though he's about to spring into battle. Their Arisaka file rifles are on the ground of their feet. The tall soldier seems bored and is chewing on a stem of grass. The two of them look perfectly natural, as if here is where they belong. Unperturbed, they watch as they approach. There's a small flat clearing around them, like a landing on a staircase. Hey, the tall soldier calls out cheerfully. How are you doing? The brawny one says with the smallest of frowns. How are you? I greet them in return. I know I should be amazed to see them, but somehow, it doesn't seem weird at all. It's wholly within the realm of possibility. We were waiting for you, the tall one said. For me, I ask. Sure, he replies. No one else is coming out here. That's for sure. We have been waiting a long time, the brawny one says. Not that time's much of a factor here, the tall one adds. Still, you took longer than I'd expected. You're the two guys who disappeared in this forest a long, long time ago, right? I ask. During the maneuvers, the brawny soldier nods. That's us. They searched everywhere for you, I say. Yeah, I know. He says. Um, I know they were looking for us. I know everything that goes on in this forest, but they are not going to find us, no matter how hard they look. Actually, we didn't get lost. The tall one says. We just ran away. Not running away so much as that, just stumbling onto this spot and deciding to stay put. The brawny one adds, "That's different from getting lost. Not just anybody can find this place." The tall soldier says, "But we did, and now you have to. It was a stroke of luck for us, at least. If we hadn't found this spot, they would have shipped us overseas." The brawny one explains, "Over there, it was kill or be killed." That wasn't for us. I'm a farmer originally, and my buddy here just graduated from college. Neither one of us wants to kill anybody, and being kills even worse. Kind of obvious, I would say. How about you? The tall one asked me. Would you like to kill anybody or be killed? I shake my head. No, neither one. Definitely not. Everybody feels like that. The tall one says, or the vast major majority at least, but. If you say, "Hey, I don't want to go off to the war," the country's not about to break 
out in smiles and give you permission to skip off you can't run away japan's a small country so where are you going to run to they'll track you down so fast it will make your head spin that's why we stayed here this is the only place we could hide he shakes his head and goes on and we've stayed here ever since as you said from a long long time ago not that times a major factor here there's almost no evidence at all between now and a long long time ago no difference at all the brawny one says waving something away with his hand you knew i was coming i ask sure thing the brawny one replies we've been standing guard here for a long time so we know if somebody is coming the other one says we are like part of the forest this is the entrance the brawny one says and we are guarding it and right now the entrance happens to be open the tall one explains before long though it will close up if you want to come in now's the time it doesn't open up all that often we'll lead the way the brawny one says the path's hard to follow so you need someone to guide you in if you don't come in then go back to where you came from the tall one says it's not all that hard to find your way back so don't worry about it you'll do just fine then you'll return to the world you came from to the life you've been living the choice is entirely yours nobody is going to force you to do one or the other but once you are in it it isn't easy to go back take me inside i answer without a moment's hesitation are you sure the brawny one asked someone's inside i have to see i say at least i think so slowly the two of them get up off the rock and shoulder their rifles they exchange a glance and walk on ahead of me You must think it's strange that we still lug around these heavy lumps of steel. The tall one says, turning around, "They are worthless. Never had any bullets anyway, but they are a kind of sign." The brawny one says, not looking back at me, "A sign of what we left behind. Symbols are important." The tall one adds, "We happen to have these rifles and soldiers' uniform, so we play the part of sentries. That's our role. Symbols guide us to the role we play." Do you have anything like that with you? The brawny one asks. Something that can be a sign. I shake my head. No, I don't have anything. Just memories. Hmm. The brawny one says, memories, eh? That's okay. Doesn't matter. The tall one says, memories can be a good symbol too. Cause I don't have any idea how well memories will stand up. How long they'll last. Something that has a form or shape is best if you can manage it. the brawny one says it's easier to understand like a rifle the tall one says by the way what's your name kafka tamura i answer kafka tamura the repeater's one weird name the tall one says you can say that again the brawny one adds adds after this we walk in silence down the path mm-hmm.